So good morning. good morning, and welcome to those of you who are watching online. Would you, as a courtesy to the people who are sitting next to you, make sure that your cell phone is in the off or silent position? And as always, it doesn't hurt to just turn around and look at all those people who are standing back there by those cameras and monitors, and when you leave, thank them for doing what they do to make this possible. Uh, I don't check analytics often do you no somebody told me a long time ago don't ever google yourself and so i try not to do that but occasionally we'll get a, a either holly or i or both of us will get an award from squarespace that says award an award a word a word yes <laughs> squarespace loves you, you, you may get an award but i don't get, get an award <laughs> so, um, we have upgraded our equipment, which means that it doesn't work. <laughs> That's the way it goes, right? Yeah. We used to have we used to have really good uh, remote controls. We're back to using our fingers. That did this work, but, but now this, that yeah. we've upgraded our stuff, it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> so let's begin in silence, okay? Take a deep breath and put your feet on the floor and do what's required just to be in the space. And in behalf of all of us, I express a gratitude that we're just able to be here and that we're able to do this and we open our hearts and minds to peace and joy and hope and patience and humility in the deep belief that what we do here benefits all people everywhere. Amen. Mm. So, uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you, you are, are welcome, welcome here. here. Um, so, I want to ask you, uh, how's it going? How's it going with your daily spiritual practice? Good? <laughs> I'm alive. <laughs> you do have one, right? That's not a wholehearted response. Yeah, is it? no one really offered that they were. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so we, we engage in our daily spiritual practice uh, to facilitate and to contribute to our ongoing cycle of spiritual growth so that we can make ordinary life, our ordinary lives, into something deeply fulfilling, and so that we can contribute that to other people whom we encounter. God knows this world needs it. So, um, you know, I, my metaphor for this is that um, we're like piano teachers, and you come here to learn to play the piano or to play it better. And just coming to the piano lesson is not going to make you a better piano player. You have to practice. And so we do these etudes to send you away with these etudes so that, that you can do and practice during the week. So I'll ask every week, how's it going with your daily spiritual practice? Okay? And how's it going with you using your turn signals? These are, yeah. Because... Step we one. were, huh? That's step one. 
of the daily spiritual practice. That is an important daily spiritual practice. <laughs> so you'll notice that Holly and I are co-teaching today. We're going to be co-teaching uh, the first Sunday of every month together. Uh, maybe more. Maybe this is a work in progress. We'll see. We're finding our, our way. Next week, Roddy Young is going to be uh, speaking, and I'm going to be sitting right where you are. Reminding him to sit up tall. And no, I'm, my, I'm going to heckle. <laughs> and then the following week, uh, I'll be uh, teaching, uh, and the title of my talk is going to be, Is God Still Dead? Mm. Is and on the 4th of September, I'll be preaching both services in the cathedral across the way, so I want you to come, please. <laughs> <clears throat> That's you right. Can, you, you, exactly. You, you know, I think it would bring some livelihood to, mm -hmm. you know, energy to the space with, you know. I keep thinking any Sunday, Sherry is going to stand up and say, he doesn't live it at home. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that could happen. So, all right. How many of you know who this is? Hold your hand up. There's one hand up. Now, we got to do better than this. <laughs> this is Jan Phillips. Jan Phillips wrote a book called Still on Fire. I know Sherry's read it. Have you read it? Mm -hmm. I've listened to it, yes. You, it's on audio. Mm -hmm. How many others of you have read this book? The book group is reading it in November. What? Great. The book group yeah. is reading it in November. The book group is reading it in November. It's not a hard it's an easy read to. It's an easy book to read. Next Sunday, I'm going to ask the same question, and 60% of the hands had better go up. What? You could read it in a week. Okay, read. In 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 seminary, when we had these huge reading assignments. Some students, I'm not going to give any names, would put books out on their breakfast table and read the newspaper, the books between the student and the newspaper, so we could say we read over the book. <laughs> kind of a monastic practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I've learned in, in doing um, my PhD is that you don't have to read the whole book. Read the parts that are important to the work you're doing. <laughs> yeah. You ask, you ask your advisor. <laughs> so um, Michael Morwood came to visit us earlier this year, and we were talking about a variety of things. And Michael said, do you know Jan Phillips? And I said, no. And he said, you need to. And so I looked her up, and with his uh, recommendation, I read this book, Still on Fire. It's fabulous, just absolutely fabulous. You agree? Sherry read it and loved it. And um, so I then, uh, thanks to Michael, reached out to Jan Phillips, got in touch with her, and had this instant connection, lots of energy. She's just really wonderful. I haven't been as, as excited about someone in a long time as, as I have about Jan Phillips. So I've arranged with her, cleared it with the church and Jeff and all that sort of stuff. She's going to be here in January. 
on January the 6th, which is, I think, a Saturday. She's going to do two presentations here, divided by dinner, and then be back the next Sunday. And uh, this will be a big event. She's, uh, she's really good. I mentioned her to my spiritual director, who is um, a Roman Catholic nun, and she said, oh, yeah, I know Jan Phillips. You'll be lucky if you can get her. Then we're lucky because we're lucky to get her. So that's it. Did you like the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's a courageous it's lady. A, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, really, read the book, please. You, you'll thank me. It, um, reading somebody else's story is so encouraging. So uh, we started doing a deep dive into the Gospel of John back before the end of the COVID shutdown, I think. It was sometime during COVID. Holly and I were doing that, seeking for things to uh, teach. And the Gospel of John is the most mystical gospel in the entire Christian canon. The word gospel, as you probably know, simply means good news and in the Christian tradition, it refers to the four Gospels that are in the New Testament canon, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not written in that order. The word canon simply means accepted scriptures in any tradition. Like in Buddhism, the, there's the reference to the Pali canon, which is the uh, accepted scriptures in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. So in the Christian tradition, we have a canon, the canon is the 27 books in the, in the New Testament. There are a lot of reasons that I never attempted to teach from the Gospel of John. <laughs> One is that it's a mystical writing, and I think a lot of people have trouble with mysticism and mystical writings. We live in a culture that has trained people, even sophisticated with it people, um, to take the biblical writings literally. In the time of the fundamentalist controversy that I've referenced here a number of times when Harry Emerson Fosdick wrote that sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? Even then, the modernists, as they were called, interpreted the New Testament stories literally. They just put a different scientific spin on them. Mm -hmm. So I just want to be clear that nothing in the Gospel of John should be taken literally. Nothing in the Gospel of John should be taken literally. It should be taken more seriously than that. So that's what we're trying to teach from the Gospel of John, specifically about resurrection. Now remember... In the work that we've done before, it's we're trying to teach about so that we can experience and express resurrection, not the resurrection. Because you get caught up in the resurrection, then you get in that fight about, well, was it real? Was it not real? Did it literally happen or not? So we're going to begin to talk about the numerous post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that appear in this uh, in the Christian story, and, and particularly those that appear in the Gospel of John. And today, we're going to do the first one. Hmm. So we are actually choosing to focus on pretty much a single line from this story. It is when hmm. Mary 
who's weeping at the tomb, um, sees Jesus appear to her, and she thinks at first that he's a gardener. She calls him Rabuni, which is more formal than rabbi. Uh, John Sanford suggested it might mean something more like, he who is like God. And she reaches for him, and he says, don't cling to me. In this moment, the resurrection and her witness of it is this is the climax of the Jesus story. It's what it's been leading up to. So we know that every word that he says is important. It's not just fluffy dialogue. It's not just space fillers. It's a key element to the whole Jesus story that begins with the Annunciation to a woman and ends with an appearance to a woman. The feminine here is extremely important and the indication to me it's clear it's an archetypal symbol of the feminine uh, being about life, death, rebirth, transformation continually. And that's the Jesus story. And that's a story that's in all of us too. We can't experience the truth of that if we can't get that fact that it's rooted in sort of feminine archetypal energy. I'll give you a really quick literary lesson. So this is like English 101.11111. In every good story, there's an arc that unfolds in five stages. It's first important to know that John is a persuasive text. And the authors are convincing us that Jesus really was something else, a really truly remarkable human. So the first part of the story arc is the exposition. This is the scene, the cast of characters, the context. Jesus, uh, John begins with, in the beginning was the word. It sets the scene for us. Then there's the rising action. This is the onset of Jesus's ministry, the build up to his public appearances. Then there's the crisis. Jesus is causing conflict. He's getting more attention. I'm really squeaky. I have allergies. I promise it's not COVID. I did 8 million tests this week. But anyway, so pardon my squeaky voice. <laughs> um, but Jesus is causing this conflict or bringing forth this conflict and getting the attention of, of authorities who will stand by him and who will betray him. All of this is kind of coming up, and it's alive in the crisis. Then finally, we have the climax, and that's the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is one of my favorite words in literary arcs, which is denouement. <laughs> and it's everything that comes after the climax. It's the resolution of the story. And the latter, the resolution, has kind of yet to be written because what I hope will become clear during this teaching is that we are the denouement, or the resolution of the Jesus story. We are called to be the embodiment of transformation, and this transformation of consciousness is really what Jesus is talking about. It's being written through us, through all that will come after us. I'll come back to the denouement, but first we'll talk a little bit about the climax. When Jesus is first spotted, having risen from the tomb, and says to this grieving woman, don't cling to me. There are so many things he could have said in this moment. It's really me. <laughs> you know, he could have said, hey, y'all, I'm back, right? Or really, you thought after everything I did while I was alive that I couldn't raise myself from the dead? You know, he, he, he could have said a lot of things, but instead he goes with, don't cling to me. And he might mean this literally, if it's literal. Um, you know, I've thought often that if I were Jesus and I had come back, I think the first thing I would have said, where are those Roman guys? 
That's right. Yeah. Or, or I'm hungry. That's our culture, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Our culture is to hit back, mm -hmm. to get back. There's not a word of this in the Johannine narrative. So John is written uh, near the end of the first century, somewhere in the 90s. So the, the execution event of Jesus had taken place 60 years before John is written. So they've got this huge block of time to craft this story. And so I think before going further, we should read the entire story <clears throat> as it uh, appears in John. So early in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, now get it, this is all symbolic language. Mm -hmm. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone was moved away from the entrance. She ran at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, breathlessly panting. They took the master from the tomb. We don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple left immediately for the tomb. They ran neck and neck. The other disciple got to the tomb first, outrunning Peter. Stooping to look in, he saw the pieces of linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived after him, entered the tomb, observed the linen cloths lying there, and the kerchief used to cover his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but separate. Neatly folded by itself. Okay, that's hilarious. Hmm? Jesus folded his linen. It's embarrassing to say this, but when I was again in the seminary, I remember that, uh, and teaching in the seminary, a student of mine preached a sermon on this text called The Tidy Tomb. <laughs> <laughs> he got an F. Hmm. But it is pretty clever. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> then the other disciple, the one who'd gotten there first, went into the tomb, took one look at the evidence, and believed. No one yet knew from the scripture, this would be the Hebrew scripture, that he had to rise from the dead. The disciples then went back home. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she knelt to look into the tomb and saw two angels sitting there, dressed in white, one at the head, the other at the foot of where Jesus' body had been laid. They said to her, Woman, why do you weep? They took my master, she said, and I don't know where they put him. After she said this, she turned away and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize him. This is a really important point. And we're going to probably come back to this. In all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, he's a stranger. Nobody recognizes him. He's a stranger on the beach. He's a stranger to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Nobody, at first, it has to dawn on them. Okay? Jesus spoke to her, woman, why do you weep? Who are you looking for? She, thinking that he was the gardener, said, Mister, if you took him, tell me where you put him so I can care for him. Jesus said, Mary, power of naming. In the beginning was the word. 
Words create worlds. John has built model on the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God spoke. Jesus said, Mary. Turning to face him, she said in Hebrew, Rabboni, meaning teacher, Jesus said, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brothers and tell them I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Now, this is a parable. And if you have read Shelby Spong's book, The Fourth Gospel, if you've not read it, I encourage you to do so, but not till you've read Still on Fire by Jan <laughs> Phillips. <laughs> that comes first. Um, now, the, the, the followers of Jesus, and you remember that these particular followers of Jesus had gone back into the synagogue with this message of Jesus and how encounter with him had transformed them. And they did have this transformed community of people who were uh, fearless and forgiving and generous and joyful and brave and all that sort of stuff. So these followers of Jesus had experienced transformed lives. And also, because of their, hope, their time with Jesus, they had developed this hope for the future. There's a great debate about what that hope was about. Was it going to be a political hope? Was it going to be some eschatological hope in the life to come or whatever? We'll deal with that at some time. But that was gone. And it was bleak. And then resurrection, which we have talked about. It was not a magical event that happened in three days. Three days is a symbolic uh, symbol. It's a symbol of transformation that's universal. Um, Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days. Threes are always setups for good jokes. A minister, priest, and a rabbi walked into a bar. <laughs> and the bartender said, is this some kind of joke? Three blind mice, three little pigs, three this, three this, three this. Carl Jung said that three is the instability of the Christian faith because the Christian faith is built on the Trinity. And, and uh, what that means is that something's in transformation, mm -hmm. something in the process of being changed. So um, there was going to be this transformation, and yet, it was not going to be something that they owned. Don't cling to me. Mm -hmm. What does it mean that I have three boys? <laughs> oh, you need another. <laughs> <laughs> the magical number. Ooh, I'm too late for that. Um, I never thought about that. Yeah. yeah. So Jesus' words to Mary could feel somewhat like a rebuke. Don't cling to me. But I wonder if it isn't a little bit more like this conversation I had with my oldest son. Last week I did say that this is happening to and through us, this denouement, right? So the gospel was alive in my house last week. Um, first of all, my son is almost 13 and he's officially taller than me. We have a mark on the door that says the day Caleb got taller than mommy. Um, second, he's still this really, really sweet, cuddly, just kind kid. He hasn't full on hit the teenage years. And I actually love teenagers, so I'm looking forward to it. But he was lying on this oversized chair we have in our living room, and he's 
super long and lean. And I just kind of sidled up behind him and gave him a big hug. And he said, Mommy, I am never going to leave your side. <laughs> exactly. I just said, cue heart melting. He really, truly is the sweetest kid. Um, of course, part of me wanted to say, yay. But instead, I put my big girl pants on and said, someday you'll want to leave me. <laughs> you might fall in love, you might travel the world, you might move to another city. You have to go off and do your own self-discovery. So he quickly responded by saying, okay, I'll come visit you Thanksgiving and Christmas then. <laughs> yeah, so you know, what happened to never leaving my side? I think if I'm being honest, part of us has to own that it, it feels good to be clung to. You know, you are, our egos kind of want to be needed. Right? And yet our, the job of a transformed ego is to say, no, no, you go do you. I've already accepted that I'm going to be the mom who wants my kids to secretly call every night and I'll keep their rooms ready and I'll have spare toothbrushes. I, I got it. Okay. So <laughs> in all seriousness, though, there's so much to unpack about this single line, don't cling to me. The aspect of the Jesus story is the whole point of our spiritual and psychological arc too. It's the path of individuation. It's the path of integration and this transformation that results from a complete change of heart, something that we are walking into and embracing one's full authentic self in the process. One word for that is metanoia. There we go. In rhetoric, metanoia, there's three kinds, of, or not, there's more than three, but the three Basic types of metanoia are rhetorical, psychological, and spiritual. In rhetoric, a metanoia is a correction that weakens or strengthens an initial argument. So Caleb, my son, maybe unknowingly, used it in his conversation with me. Mommy, I will never leave you. Well, maybe I'll just come for Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> right? So the metanoia was so emphatic, and then he minimized that sort of, he took it back a little bit. In psychology, metanoia is the healing that follows a complete breakdown. It's otherwise known as the individuation and integration process, the process of living as the true self, usually as a result of struggle. My favorite story about this, which I know I've, do I ever talk about this? Why is this, you, why do you think this is your favorite story? Yes, you have talked about it a lot. I'm gonna tell you why it's my favorite oh, okay. story. So my favorite story about individuation or about psychological and also spiritual metanoia is the story of Jacob wrestling the angel. And you know, Jacob was a really difficult guy to like. He was all ego, he was a bit of a misogynist, okay, a lot of a misogynist. He was a liar, he was a guy who showed favoritism to his kids and they knew it, and he deceived his twin brother for personal gain. So he was also incredibly persistent. He was determined, de determined to get what he wanted. So when this angel appears to him, Jacob fought it, fought the angel, which is also said to be maybe an image of God, but he would not let go of this angel the entire night. The night is important again, because the night is representative of the struggle. The night is representative of the dark night of the soul, which doesn't happen once, by the way. It happens again and again and again but it's necessary to self-discovery. Mary went to the tomb while it was still dark. The dark is always important in the kind of transformation we're talking about. In the Jacob story, 
the angel cannot get Jacob to let go of him. I mean, I'm just thinking this angel is like, get off me. So finally, the angel injures Jacob's hip. And just to get him to let go, and the hip, by the way, if you think of kind of um, uh, the body and what the body represents to us, the messages the body sends to us, the hip is representative of walking forward in one's path. Any kind of lower limb represents walking forward on the path that we're meant to be on. So Jacob was resisting his path until he didn't. And by morning, Jacob receives a new name, which is Israel. And Israel does not translate to he who is imperfect and is now perfect. It translates to he who wrestles with God. So the wrestling, the struggle, is kind of the point of the story. And I think that's why I like it. I'm, I'm okay with struggle. You know, like I think our whole life is kind of about, okay, and now what, and now what, and now what. Not so much seeking more and more and more, but just becoming more and more and more ourselves. Mm -hmm. So he walked with a limp for the rest of his days as a reminder of this struggle. The limp did not go away. He was healed and he was whole, but he was not perfect. So put a pin in this. We'll come back to this at some point, not today. But this point of why it's so important for us to wrestle with our notions of God in order to experience transformation, to unbelieve in order to believe, if you will. So Jacob's new identity, and I know this story is not about Jacob, but the two to me are so parallel. Jacob's new identity is symbolic of a, the destiny of an entire people. And Mary's experience of the resurrected Jesus is not dissimilar. Both Jesus and Jacob are wounded after this transformation. They are not perfectly healed, and as I said, they are no less whole. I think one of the reasons I love this story, again, is because it's about the process. It's not what happens before and where you get to after. It's that we are in continual process. It's about how our entire experience is kind of coalescing in this one beautiful, cracked, imperfect vessel of a body. Spiritually, metanoia is a conversion. It means a, a total change of heart. And this kind of subsequent transformation that comes from repentance, that's why repentance is such a big deal in the uh, Christian liturgy, is it's not, I don't see it, and you may have something more to say this to this about we are bad and therefore we need this cleansing through this um, person called Jesus. It's really just, can I change my ways so that I can become, again, more fully myself? Can I actually live into this person that I'm called to be? So these experiences of uh, transformation of consciousness are usually become from a powerful set of experiences, like wrestling an angel all night. I think we would remember that, right? Or walking, coming upon a resurrection, an empty tomb. Both metaphors, by the way. It does not result from going through the motions. It doesn't result from believing the right things or the right doctrine. It does not result from believing in Jesus or even God, but from becoming and behaving from that true part of ourselves. That's why Jesus says, don't cling to me. He doesn't need us to believe in him. So I want to amend that last statement about uh, becoming the truest part of the self. You don't become yourself. Yourself already inhabits you. 
So this is a matter of bringing it forth, of kind of letting it come true to the light. This is the work of our lifetime. It's been said that each of us is 100% ourselves 100% of the time, <laughs> and this is true. It's just that some parts of the self are hidden. You know, I really, yeah. I really like the fact that you brought up that, that, that goes over and over and over and over, that this is not a once-in-a-lifetime event, this thing. And I was thinking um, that one of the books that I read decades and decades ago, I think it was my introduction to Henri Nouwen, mm. was The Wounded Healer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some of you may be familiar with that book. I know I recommend a lot of books. It's a, it's <laughs> Just a write good, this it's one a, down. It, it is also, it's, it's also very good. And I have, um, in my iconic, um, my love of icons, my love of gothic stuff, I've, I've gone back and forth about the way that we depict Jesus on the cross. I mean, in the Protestant tradition, the cross is empty. But in the Catholic tradition, both East and West, there's a bleeding, wounded, broken body on, mm -hmm. on the cross. And I think it, it, is, it acknowledges something to say that our teacher is wounded. Mm -hmm. and, and that the, in the story, uh, he doesn't overcome the wounds. That's right. They, he has them they after, become part of They us. become he, yeah. the, the, part, of, part of the identity of somebody who does have an encounter with grace is that wound, mm -hmm. you know. It's, otherwise, why do you need grace? I have had, thank God, thank grace, a lot of good mm -hmm. teachers in my life, and one of them was Robert Johnson, and when I indicated to him years ago that I was getting this clarity about being a spiritual teacher, um, he said that, you know, you're, you're teaching, the teaching has always got to be grounded in the self. And he uses self with a capital S. He said, not self-centered, but grounded in, in, in the self. And I love what Paul Tillich says in one of his books. I only want to show you something I have seen mm -hmm. and tell you something I have heard, which is that here and now in the world and now and then in ourselves is new creation. That's what this parable in John is about. There's this new creation. There is this new possibility. And the metaphors, as Holly referred to, are over and over and over again the story. There is the feminine. There is darkness. There's dark to, day, to, to daylight. New creation, possible all the time. And... Um, Paradoxically, you can't have this new creation by grasping. <laughs> but if you don't grasp, you don't get it. I'm not sure that this can be put into words. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, uh, you know, when, when I'm not going to do the quote today, well, because I've done it so often. Carl Jung said, there's not been a one of the people I've sought who's looking for psychological help who did not find it in gaining a religious outlook. That's what Jung is talking about 
Jung is talking about this event, if you read his writings. When Bill Wilson in, in AA talks about the way out of addiction is to have a valid religious experience, this is what it is. They never talk about how do you get that. It's a gift of grace, which we Methodists ought to be really big on. Grace is a big thing in, in the Methodist church. I think one of the reasons that there's been a shift in mysticism over the last 20 years, 15 or 20 years, uh, is because our outer-oriented culture out there has failed us. Just go home and read the newspaper. It's failed us. And in none of my seminary education, we got some seminary-educated folks in this class, and maybe they would agree with this, in none of my seminary education was I exposed to mysticism, and I've had some of the best there is. There was not a word about mysticism when I did a postdoc at Harvard, not a word. But over the past number of years, there's been this resurgence of mysticism, especially in the Christian tradition. No one talked about Meister Eckhart 10 or 15 years ago. But now, no one talked about John of the Cross, but now, and we, we have this resurgent because other things have, have failed us. I think, this is my language, the vulgarity of fundamentalism has covered up the beauty of truth. Mm. Meister Eckhart said, we don't achieve by attaining because nothing is missing. We experience truth by letting go over and over and over again. Don't cling to me. Eckhart also said, um, God is at home. Hmm. It is we who have gone out for a walk. So uh, I'm going to say something now that I do not expect you to do. <laughs> and I'm not using reverse psychology. <laughs> but it is the fourth book you will have mentioned today. <laughs> I am going to mention another mm. book. I have, I've written a book on reverse psychology. Oh, yeah? Don't read Don't it. Don't open it? Okay. But in uh, 1995, when I decided to go deeper into Jungian studies, I read a book by Edward Edinger. And uh, you told me you had not read this yet. Edinger. I have it. I have not read it. I've only pulled the parts out. It is not an easy read. No, it's not. No, it's not. Now, the one that you've been recommending to me that I've not archetype. read mm -hmm. on the Christian archetype, is it an easy read? I find it to be very direct. And really, um, it's really well illustrated. So anything with pictures. Just kidding. <laughs> um, well, this book, Ego and Archetype, uh, I started, re I'm just about through with my second rereading. I started reading it on the plane going to England. It's a wonderful book. It is a hard read. I mean, it requires you really to think and it's a lot of references to things that you never heard about in your whole life. But what Edinger does is he lifts up this metaphorical, parabolic nature of truth. And he refers to the story. He refers to this story that we're looking at 
today the Christian story as this metaphorical, parabolic story about the way that new life is experienced and apprehended by people. And if you were to read this book, which I don't <laughs> expect you to do. Now this went to, to everyone's number one on their list, right? Everyone's like, I'll show do you how not, smart I am. Do not go out and try to find it at a oh bookstore. Bookstores are closed today. <laughs> and liquor stores. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you will appreciate what a powerful story this is in John. This post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, the that one of the lines, just one of the lines that we're looking at today about don't cling. Don't, don't, don't cling. Now, you know enough about some of the Buddhist teachings and other teachings and Jesus and the Beatitudes and other things to know that those who don't cling are those who don't suffer, those who give up, those who have poverty of, of spirit are those who have life. So, um, in in um, September, here on September the 4th, um, I'm charged with preaching both services. And I don't know if you know this or not, but our salary is based on how many people <laughs> show Some baseball players' salary is based on how well they pitch that day, too. Yeah. So, no, seriously. We have, we have thankfully, a, a, a lectionary-based uh, worship service and if you talk to any preacher who has to deal with the lectionary most of the time we say thank God for the lectionary sometimes we say oh God for the lectionary because it's difficult sometimes to deal with some of the passages but um, by the way we took this lectionary tradition from our Jewish mothers and fathers this is not original with Christians we just appropriated something else so the gospel text for that Sunday is about letting go and it's about, uh, it's got about the strongest language in it that mm. the Jesus, pre-resurrection -Je pre Jesus has in any of his sayings. And that is, if you don't hate your mother and your father, you ain't going to make it into the kingdom. And there is no way to look at the Greek and try to sidestep this. Mm. That's exactly what the Greek word said. The Greek word is the word we get misogyny from. I mean, it's right there. And you can't sidestep it. It's a powerful statement about letting go. This is nothing new in the teaching of Jesus. So every mystical tradition, you have to come that Sunday to hear the rest of that. <laughs> I'll tell so, my son not to come. Huh? I'll tell my son not to come so that he never leaves my side. <laughs> I'll, I'll send him a copy. Okay. <laughs> so we know about the danger of attachments. We know about the need for enunciation. We know about the importance of letting go. And frankly, when most of us hear this talk, we get a in our mm. gut. You know, you trust your stomach about what's going on. Or we dismiss it as not being applicable to us. But nothing could be truer than this story. Mm. And nothing could be more needed for us and our culture right now than this story. Mm. Live with it. Mm. 
So instead of an admonishment, when Jesus says, don't cling to me or hate your mother and father, it's not an admonishment. It's an invitation. It leads to the denouement, which is the resolution of the Jesus story, which is, as I said, fulfilled in and through us. We are still in resolution. This kind of metanoia that we're being invited into is to choose a life of radical love. And for, that means for self, for others, and the world. Jesus is not needing us to be codependent. He's, not, he's telling us here to embrace the fact that we, too, have this love in us, that we, too, can bring it forth. I, I don't wrestle very often anymore with the existence of God because I'm coming to believe more and more and more that the only thing, the only thing that really matters is love. And Viktor Frankl, who survived a concentration camp under brutal circumstances, we've both referenced him. He wrote a life-changing book and kind of invented logotherapy. But he wrote this in the midst of great suffering. As we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and again, dragging one another up and onward, nothing was said but we knew. Each of us was thinking of his beloved. A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief hath to impart. The salvation of man, humans, is through love and in love. I understood how a person who has nothing left in this world may still know bliss, be it only for a brief moment in the contemplation of love. I'd like to assert that we don't have to lose everything or be in a concentration camp to embrace love as the path that we're meant to be on. As a parent, I definitely relate to Jesus' statements in two directions. I can't cling to my child, and I can't prohibit his growing up. There's very little I can control about my children's life in reality, other than when they eat or when I make dinner for them, really, they might not eat it. I also, I also can't mistake my child for my identity. He is not, they are not my sole purpose in life. They can't be, that's a lot to put on a child. I can't make them responsible for my happiness. I can't even make Josh responsible for my happiness. This is a lot to put on anyone we love. So what I can do or try to do, and some days are better than others, is to provide enough love, enough of the time, for my child to become himself. Young cautioned us against this, that he said that the most dangerous thing a parent can do is to project the unlived life onto the child. Mm -hmm. We see in Jesus a person who's fully aware of this fact. I am not your faith, Mary. I am not your purpose. I am not your savior. Don't cling to me. So the story doesn't end here. Yes, Jesus is the climax. The resurrection is the climax. But the resolution, again, is in you, and you, and you. It's in all of us. Jesus came so that we might know life abundantly, so that we might absorb what he has to say and become it in our own ways. It's about 
our own process of metanoia, mm -hmm. our own transformation, and our own process of becoming. We can't live for Jesus just as Jesus, or just as the child cannot live for the parent. So each of us has a particular attachment style that was influenced by our relationship with our caregivers. Our attachment style can change and transform, but how we hear this message of Jesus's may be affected by which type of attachment we have. Are we familiar with these? Secure attachment, insecure attachment, disorder. These are, we learn these in Psych 101, basically. A secure person who's securely attached may say, okay, I got everything I need from you, Jesus, and now the work is mine to do. She might feel nervous, Jesus might be a little worried about her, but larger than that is this excitement for her about what lies ahead. She might be sent off with a nice little sack lunch, she'll wave goodbye over her shoulder, and maybe with a little tear in her eye, both of them will know she'll be okay because she's securely attached. She's got her and the teacher has him. An anxious person in this scenario might say, but wait, I have like a hundred more, this is me, I have like a hundred more questions and I wanna make sure I'm doing this right. And is this spot on the map the one where I'm supposed to be or is it somewhere else? What will I do without you, Lord? To which Jesus might respond with a hand on the shoulder while gently prying the map out of her hand, you're gonna be okay. Trust me, trust you, you got this. A dismissively attached person might say, I never needed you anyway. Forget this. I'm not even going to take your sack lunch and I'm, forget the map. Throw the map down, throw the compass back at Jesus and storm off. The dismissive person thinks, it's all on me. You never did anything for me anyway. The fearfully attached person might say, okay, fine. I'll let go. I've got this. In fact, I'm not even going to call and she'd start to walk off, and then she'd turn around, and she'd lunge back at Jesus and hug his neck, and then she'd give him a desperate hug through tears, and he'd say, and she'd say, do you even love me anymore? And then she'd turn away and storm off. So that's a confusing type of attachment. I don't need you, I need you. I don't need you, I need you, right? No matter how we respond to this, Jesus remains resolute. He doesn't move toward our need for codependency. He doesn't move away from it. He doesn't enable the fears arrogance or anxieties. Again and again, as I have done during this hour, he keeps repeating, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me. I love you, he says. I believe in you. Do you? I've come to appreciate both from Bill and from my own studies that the core of all wise spiritualities is fairly consistent. In one case, there's a basic oneness or we-ness at the heart of reality. I, I don't mean oneness as harmony or perfection. I mean it more in the sense that everything belongs. Everything belongs. It's what in cosmology we refer to as a differentiated unity. All the individual parts create the whole. The second is love is the common commandment. This quote from one of my favorite thinkers, Teilhard de Chardin, sums it up. Love is the most universal, the most tremendous, and the most mystical of cosmic forces. It is the primal and universal psychic energy. It is a sacred reserve. It is like the blood of spiritual evolution. Love is the blood of spiritual evolution, and it is the only thing that has ever changed the world for good. 
And then third, we know someone who talks about this a lot, is taking personal responsibility. <laughs> Have we done that yet? How are we doing? So each of us is responsible for our own decisions and behaviors such that we do them in ways that either push against or toward. And actually, outside of those two binaries, there's a third way, and that's with, to work with, to be with. Against energy puts us in opposition to life. It might be the dismissively attached person. Um, toward energy is perhaps more positive, but it can lean into codependence. I need you, I need you, I need you. With, on the, with, on the other hand, is interdependence. I'll take the teachings, I'll use them and apply them in my own life. I'll take responsibility for my life. You are not responsible for my life. It says, I support you becoming your best self, just as I support that for myself. And I think this with energy is the kind that Jesus is trying to communicate. I'm going to close with one of my favorite quotes from another great thinker who had this beautiful understanding of the triad of mystery, science, and the human forces in the world. This man is Albert Einstein. <laughs> And he's evidence that we don't have to give up on logic in order to be in this wild pursuit of love. Love is actually very logical. He wrote this to a rabbi who had recently lost a child. And this rabbi, of course, began to question everything, as we do in times of dark nights. He wrote, a human being is a part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space, his experience, he experiences himself, his thoughts, and feeling as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. Every single thing that makes you, you, not only belongs, but it is welcome here. The you that you are is exactly enough. So don't cling to me. Don't cling to Bill. Don't cling to Jesus. Do you. It's a great story. Mm. Thank you. And thank you all. And remember next Sunday that uh, Roddy's going to be our teacher, and I'll be here to heckle and support. And I hope you will be too. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you here next week. Thank you. Mm.